great products, great companies that are truly wanting to be sustainable are thinking in terms of their people, they're thinking in terms of their the planet, and they're thinking in terms of profit. I don't think you want to manage people. I think you want to set up expectations collaboratively and then try and get out of the way as, as best you possibly can. I think there's this opportunity for us as a brand to transform the way in which people think about furniture experiences in the home. So they think about them in terms of delivering better well-being to themselves, their family, and better well-being to the planet. Welcome to the Beyond Capital podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. Together, we have built and invested in businesses worth millions. We want to show you how social impact can exist in a company's operations, product, and culture, sometimes unexpectedly. We hope you walk away knowing the possibilities of social impact for you and feeling inspired by the potential to do good. This is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's guest is Richard Shirtcliffe. Richard is the co-founder and CEO of NoHo, a furniture company creating earth-friendly designs comprised mainly of upcycled plastic waste. Richard is a serial entrepreneur who began his career by starting a marketing company, and he was previously the CEO of Tuatara Brewery, New Zealand's largest independent brewery, and the CEO of Coffee Supreme. Welcome, Richard. It's really exciting to have you today. Very pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. Let's dive in. Full disclosure, I have one of your fabulous chairs. Uh, it's super comfortable and the fact that it is sustainable and coming from recycled materials makes me feel really good about sitting in it and, and having purchased it. Oh, that's a great, that's a great intro. Eva. We could probably just end it here. I mean, that's great. <laughs> we didn't yeah. give her one of those in the, in the Beyond Capital <laughs> podcast studio. She's sitting on a hard wooden chair this morning. <laughs> I think I'll just survive. keep her honest. <laughs> but you know, I think talking about your background uh, and starting with your distinguished background as an entrepreneur, an advisor, and a leader of many companies, as Ed mentioned, from breweries to coffee businesses, I think would, it would be great to take that step back and really understand what were your early influences and how did you get to where you are now? Wow, that's quite a question. Well, again, I mean, interestingly. I was always keen to, to to be entrepreneurial to start things, um, but I, I haven't always exercised that particular muscle through my career. So I've, got, I've flirted with my own things and then working for other people. But one of my earliest roles was actually uh, working for um, the Health Sponsorship Council in New Zealand, which was the, the organization charged with replacing tobacco sponsorship when that became outlawed with uh, what they termed health brands. One of the earliest health brands was smoke-free and the street skills and a sun smart to protect people against skin cancer, which is a huge issue in New Zealand. And I was really, really persuaded by the social marketing. I really enjoyed that. Um, I wasn't very good at it, but I really enjoyed the uh, really enjoyed the experience. And it was quite formative for me. In some regards, I'd forgotten the, the, uh, the experience or the sense of fulfillment and purpose that I had from that in the intervening years. And it wasn't until fairly recently, maybe the last five or 10 years, where I started thinking I have drifted somewhat in my career, as we often do as individuals drifted to chase ambition to chase you know um, success or a, you know a senior role become a CEO of a business those sorts of ambitions and I had somewhat forgotten that sense of deep purpose 
purpose and fulfillment that comes from doing something that is intrinsically good. So the last kind of five or 10 years, I've really been trying to get back to that place of sense of fulfillment. And I, and I tried with some of the organizations I was running to instill some of that sense of purpose and uh, intrinsic value into the organizations. But I, I did find it much, much harder to instill those things into organizations that were, that were already pre, pre-formed. That's interesting. I was just going to say that the little known fact, since you're in the furniture industry, that I grew up in the furniture business. And my dad, who's 79 years old, owns a furniture store in Ohio, still runs it. But I'm curious to know why did you choose furniture and why were you attracted to that space in this part of your career? It's, a, it's an excellent question. And, the, and the, the truth of the matter is, I didn't start with choosing furniture. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, it really came about because after a number of years of running this other organization, I got to a point where I was, I was a little burnt out. And my wife, Sarah, and I decided to take our young children and go and live somewhere different for a while to reset. So we, we went and lived in Indonesia for a few months. And it was an amazing experience for us as a family. And I've told the story a number of times. Day two, we were, we were teaching them to surf. And, and when I say teaching them, we, we, we had hired instructors because Sarah and I are terrible surfers. We're keen kite surfers, but terrible surfers. But there was this magical family moment where my then four-year-old, uh, seven-year-old, nine-year-olds were, were up on the same wave with us at the same moment. And that, that was magical. And the thing that disturbed us most about that moment was the volume of plastic that was washing around us and them. And also the fact that they seemed particularly unperturbed by that. And so Sarah and I got talking a lot over the, the subsequent weeks and months about what we could do to attack the, the, the global plastics problem, which of course is a you know subset of the climate change issue, and uh, we concluded that of course it's going to be this complex matrix of things, approaches, you know, legislation, regulation, education, but of course it's going to require companies to cease the use of single-use plastics and also be a part of the solution, not just do things less bad, but actually be a fundamental net benefit to the earth. And this kind of logic was washing around our minds as we got back to New Zealand, and I got talking to a really good friend of mine, Richard. Cutfield, who's an investor and director of little known but highly influential design studio called Formway, which has for some decades been pioneering performance ergonomics and office furniture. They're responsible for the Life Chair by Knoll, the Generation Chair by Knoll, a lot of Knoll's uh, commercial um, seating. And in fact, one or two of those designs have wound up in a couple of the, the um, modern art museums in, in, in the States because they're so interesting. And they had been playing around with this concept of how do we bring that level of ergonomics from the office and into the family home? Because increasingly we're, we're living around the hub of the home and boy, this year has brought that to the, to the fore, hasn't it? Living around the hub of the home, we're working there, we're doing homework there, we're doing craft there and we need the sort of ergonomic support that we typically see in the office but in the home. And they wanted to do it in a way that looked beautiful and they wanted to do it in a way that was environmentally sensitive. And they showed me this product and I was wowed by it. And uh, and I said, look, I think there's more to this. I think if we can create an organization that is wedded to, to design for the well-being of the individual, which you guys are already doing, that's great. And also wedded to upcycling waste plastic and eradicating single-use plastics and being part of the conversation, part of thought leadership around how we use uh, waste plastic to turn it into long-term treasure, then I think we've got a brand here. So that's how I got into furniture. I mean, I've, I've uh, long been into design. My wife's a designer. I'm a student of design thinking. So design is sort of in my DNA to some degree, but that's how we came to furniture. It was sort of a, a happenstance, a happy moment, a couple of epiphanies coming together nicely. I also love design. I love those Noel chairs. His name sounds really familiar to me. I wanted to also ask you a question about where you're from. The vision, at least from my perspective of New Zealand, is beautiful place, extensive nature, and a female leader who I look up to. And rugby. 
and rugby. Yes. And, <laughs> and rugby and quite and a few sheep. Throw, yeah, throw that um, in there. Shame about the World Cup in Japan, but and yeah, thank you, thank you for thank you for opening that wound again for me. Ed. It's okay. I was um, there. I was in London, 2016 or whatever. And you talked about the change from tobacco advertising to well-being advertising and kind of this forward thinking. You also named your company NoHo after an indigenous phrase for sit, stay, dwell, and live. So clearly your, your background and, and being a New Zealander has influenced you. I would love for you to unpack that a little bit. Gosh, yes, there's lots to that. Let's start with Noho and work backwards. I think one of the one of the things that has occurred to me um, as I as I enter the, the second half of what I hope to be the second half of my life is that um, it's something of an awakening. And, and people talk about being woke, and, and you can give it all sorts of um, you know derogatory terms. But I, I think I have woken to some degree, and, and my wife Sarah is, is significantly responsible for this, to the reality of intersectional inequality around the world and, and how that affects you know everything that we, 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 we talk about, politics, social democracy, economics, education, climate, etc. And I have long been of a view that for New Zealand, which is wonderful, but it's it's a long way from being perfect. And one of the areas in which it falls down is, is racial equality. Certainly, the largest share of the lower socio-demographic is made up by Māori and, and Pacific Islanders. And that is a terrible statement, I think, on on any any nation when you know race is the defining factor of a lower socio-demographic. And um, so I've been of a view that one of the things for New Zealand looking into the future is everybody in New Zealand should have common purpose and one way in which to engender that is to for everyone to have equal pride in our history and I, by that I mean our indigenous history and taking New Zealand design the best of New Zealand design the best of New Zealand products to the world on a foundation of te reo Māori to me it is about a deep and abiding respect for the values of Te Reo Māori, which are extraordinary and wonderful. I mean, for example, we've we've built our values around kaitiakitanga, which means guardianship of the natural world, and hihiritanga, which means making better things in a better way. And manakitanga, you know, we rise, we, we we grow by rising, bringing others up, you know. And so that was really behind using um, Te Reo in that way. Uh, and look, there are, it's fair to say that there are some people who are ardently anti us doing that and others are very supportive of it so it's not a it's not clear cut by any means why are they anti are they feeling like you're sort of appropriating that yeah look there's a concern around that we went through a deep deep and lengthy process to make sure that we we didn't do that but i i absolutely understand both perspectives i reiterate that it was done out of deep respect and a desire to build up a deep pride in te reo maori on the world stage but going to new zealand yeah look uh you you raise a couple of things i mean i I consider my. I think we all consider ourselves lucky to have to have grown up where we've grown up, whether it's the United States or Britain or New Zealand or, or you know wherever we were born. But and we always have an affinity and affiliation for for home. But I do feel particularly lucky having grown up in New Zealand, and for several reasons. New Zealand does have a, a, a lengthy history of social democracy, and I, I talk to my American friends about that. And to some degree, it's hard for New Zealanders to understand the political the American political context because the entire New Zealand political spectrum from the far left to the far right would fit inside the, the Democratic Party in the United States. We haven't even got to the Republican Party. So so that they're just the, the reference points are very different in New Zealand. But 
by and large, New Zealand politics is quite middle of the road, which means that there is there tends to be more agreement around the things that truly matter. And I think you can see that through history. You know, we're the first nation to give women the vote. We're the first nation to go nuclear free. And that, of course, is a tremendous amount of difficulty economically and politically with the United States at the time. We've since patched that that up, thankfully. I, in terms of leadership, you talk about Jacinda Ardern, and she is a remarkable leader. And again, there are plenty of people because of their political views in New Zealand who are not pro Jacinda. Being in the United States and looking back at New Zealand and contrasting that leadership with the leadership we're experiencing up here right now, it gives me a particularly unique perspective. I think. I think what she is she represents is modern leadership. She represents leadership driven from empathy and she is increasing the, the view of the, the, the trust that people not from New Zealand feel in New Zealand as a, as a kind of a brand, if you like. And she is driving New Zealand to a more empathic future. And I think that can only do good things for all New Zealanders. So yeah, I think she's remarkable. Well, let's shift gears to sustainability because that's mm-hmm. sort of like the major topic here. The sustainable chair, it's made of plastic. That's sort of the headline. Real quick, like what does sustainability mean to you? And then if you would indulge us, we'd like to sort of dive into a little bit more theoretical aspects of sustainability. So first of all, like what does sustainability mean for you and your company? That's an awesome question because it does mean different things to different people. I believe sustainability to be about triple bottom line, right? I think that great products, great companies that are truly wanting to be sustainable are thinking in terms of their people, they're thinking in terms of their planet, and they're thinking in terms of profit. Thirdly, if you like, thinking about them equally, yes, because a, a, a business has got to be profitable to to continue to to thrive and that that's about sustainability growing a long-term sustainable business is about ensuring that it has profit to survive but i think increasingly we've got to design businesses with all three of those things in mind from the outset you know the ella macarthur foundation in the the uk talks about the fact that 80 percent of waste and pollution is designed into a product at, at the design phase and i think the same can be said for a company you've got to design into an organization an entity what it is that you want the entity to represent and how you wish it to behave right from the get-go. Bake in inappropriate behaviours over time. So sustainability for me means those things. I mean, I think it gets tricky, and I struggle with this to some degree, when you think in terms of the phrase, the most sustainable product you will ever buy is the one that you don't. That was our next question. <laughs> right. Right. So, so you know, it's it's hard in some regards. Don't to, buy to, our to chair. Do. Don't buy our chair because it's more <laughs> well, sustainable. But, well, to some degree, that's right. And in fact, we've actually had that conversation a few times quite publicly. Say, look, you know, you, the world doesn't need more chairs, more stuff. But it does need better stuff and stuff that's made to last and stuff that's made to be circular. So when it's ended its useful life, it can come back into the hopper and turn into something more beautiful again and go back out into into the world in that kind of virtuous loop. Thank you. I think when I met you through the Conscious Investor magazine in our Good Economy piece, where we kind of felt that your work was so powerful was around the thinking of triple bottom line and the stakeholder model. I know that you think about more than even just the product itself. So how does the mission translate also into a company culture? Yeah, look, that's a great question. It translates in a bunch of ways. And this is all relatively nascent, you understand, because we only launched in in, uh, in April. So, you know, a lot of the stuff you have to, will we'll metamorphose over time. Right at the get-go, even before we were trading, we, we were determined to be a B Corp. We applied for that. We got the pass mark and we're about to have the final certification. So we've been pending for some time. 
And that was a deliberate attempt to have a an external scorecard, if you like, that we could own up to, which was as much about our people as it was about the operation of the business. It was also because I was very keen from the get-go that the kind of people that we wanted to employ should be those who were values-driven, mission-driven, and they would and being a B Corp would appeal to those those individuals. How it's then translated into the individuals that we've hired and the way in which we look after them is the following. After many, many years of hiring many people and asking them all sorts of tricky and horrible questions to make them sweat, I've foregone all of that stuff. And now I just tend to have conversations with them. But I, at some point, always drop into the conversation. Give me an example of when you most recently truly cared about something. And I don't really mind whether they say, oh, this morning when my cat jumped on my bed because I just love my cat, or whether they say, oh, last summer when I went to the Southern Ocean to fight the Japanese um, killing whales because I just got to protect the whales. I don't really mind necessarily where they sit on that continuum, but what I mind is whether or not they can instantly hook into the concept of caring. Because if they cannot, and it, it would surprise you how many people out of, um, out of 10 uh, struggle to hook into the concept of caring rapidly. If they can't hook into the concept of caring, then I know that they're not going to be right for us. So caring about doing something beyond themselves is crucial to the hiring process. Thereafter, you know, I'm a bit tired these days of trying to, in inverted commas, manage. I mean, if you look at the, the root of the word manage, it effectively goes way back to the, to the Latin to horse wrangle. And it tells you everything you need to know about, about, <laughs> about modern style of management. I don't think you want to manage people. I think you want to set up expectations collaboratively and then try and get out of the way as, as best you possibly can. So the, how that plays out for us is we will dial into a weekly management meeting. One of the moments of comedy every single week is where Jen, our head of customer care, is going to be in the world because she's got a van and she will find herself I and mean, she'll dial in from Crested Butte or she'll dial in from South Carolina. And it's always hilarious. We never know where she's going to be. None of that gets in the way of her doing her job because that's how she wants to live her life. And we want her to be able to live the life she wants to live and do the work blended and woven into, into the life she wants to lead. And I think that's the important order of things. Just a quick like simple question where are your chairs available like are they available in the u.s and new zealand like do you sell them around the world are they in production are they ready to be in production so I, that's the first question i have okay before great recently yeah yep that's not yep. meant to be a, a promo or anything but i'm just damn curious. <laughs> i appreciate the question nonetheless yeah look at they are they're available in the united states and in new zealand and it's all direct to customer to consumer online through our own website noho.co.co and the reason we've done that is because we were trying to make great design accessible to, to people as accessible as possible and you know you can argue the price point but as accessible as we possibly could and if you go through retail and what have you then margin gets tacked on and it gets a little out of, out of hand so we also wanted to reduce freight reduce you know re- reduce packaging reduce shipping all sorts of things but they're made in New Zealand Ed uh, we decided to manufacture down there because we wanted to get use as much renewable energy as possible and New Zealand is I think 85% renewable energy now and, and our factory can can utilize all renewable energy so it's it's something of a trade-off because of course you've got to ship the uh, the product in bulk to the United States and that, that's not great we think better to manufacture with renewable energy and ship as we've learned on a past episode I assume they're coming by boat so shipping by boat is 
is probably one of the more energy efficient ways of transporting goods around the planet. That's right. That's right. I mean, there are impurities that go into the water, which are not great. But I mean, look, we, we <laughs> I should say, we didn't get out of the gates wearing halos. We are a long way from being perfect. What we're trying to do is, is be net benefit. And there are lots of ways in which we can yet improve and we will. Great. I would love to turn to a round of rapid fire questions so we could get to know you even better quickly. And then, you know, we'll turn back to your company because I have, I have some question, a question around the vision. But just to get started, Richard, what book is on your nightstand right now? In your camper. In my, in my camper, which is where, I, which is where you find me. Look, look embarrassingly, I've got, a, I've got a pile of books which I've had to rationalize for the camper trip, but it's still a pile of books, all of which are only partially read. But on my bedstand at the moment is Blitzscaling by Reid Hoffman. Okay, classic. The Greed Capitalist, which is a fascinating book, and Speaking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. There are also a couple of light reads as well, but um, we don't need to mention those because the, 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 the first three just sound so much more impressive. That is, <laughs> that's enough too. Uh, and then what is your go-to morning beverage? Yeah, is it coffee, tea, or caffeine-free? Caffeine-free. That's a, that's, a, that's a hyphenated swear word. Um, <laughs> no, no, look, I'm, look I'm, I'm, I'm very English about the whole thing. I start the day with copious cups of tea, and then about mid-morning, I, I migrate into a, a tub of coffee. Do you know, there's English breakfast tea, Irish breakfast tea, and Scottish breakfast tea. I wonder if there's New Zealand breakfast tea. <laughs> That's a great question. Well, the classic New Zealand breakfast tea, of course, is Bell tea, but I wouldn't. It's not called New Zealand breakfast tea. But it's, actually, you know what? You just you just giving me an idea. I'm going to work on that. Yeah, that actually that's a free one. That's a freebie. <laughs> <laughs> Name something that is giving you hope right now. Do you know what's giving me hope most? I think is the uh, is and this, this will sound a little trite, probably coming from somebody like me, but it's it's the next generation coming through. I see in Gen Z. The kind of activism, social activism that we witnessed in the 60s. And that gives me hope that this, the, the current um, global divisiveness, you know, refusal to acknowledge climate change, refusal to tackle the plastics battle, you know, nationally, globally and meaningfully will turn around because of, you know, because of that generation. You know, they want us to do better. They want us to create regenerative businesses. They're demanding it of us. And that's great. So that gives me a lot of hope. Here's a bit of a wild card. Have you ever had to trade off sustainability with profit making? Whoa. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I have. And uh, it was a it was a really salient lesson for me. It was when I was running the coffee company and we were, you know, it was a it was a big coffee company. We were sending out a lot of bags of coffee and they were all lined with aluminium foil and soft plastic and what have you and it did my head in. and so we had a a year-long project trying to find a material to send the, the beans out to people in uh, that didn't involve aluminium, aluminium foil and, and soft plastics. But it took that long. I mean, it was a, a hell of a long process trying to trying to find a, a, a replacement material. You know, you see me, I don't have any here, but if I had some, I would have torn it out in that time. And what is your favorite way to unwind after all of this, uh, you know, mental gymnastics that you have to do. I mean, running a sustainable company is hard. Triple bottom line, you're constantly balancing one thing against another. And there are you're really introducing more equations you have to solve for. And so I wonder like what's your favorite way to unwind? 
Well, I'm always fond of saying that um, my my personal mission in life is just more time in shorts. You know, I don't mm. necessarily want to work uh, 80, 100 hour weeks. I'm not that guy. I want to spend more time in shorts. And, and, and that, that's a theme for my wife and I. More time in shorts, which means more time playing with, with the kids, more time kite surfing and more time mountain biking. So the more time we can do mountain biking and kite surfing, the happier I am. Turning back to NoHo, where do you see the company in the future? What we have set out to build, me, Richard, the designers, Kent and Paul, this is the whole team. What we set out to build is a long-term sustainable business. That means a business that lasts forever and continues to do great things for, for people and planet. And, you know, no business has really lasted forever. So it's sort of, it's, it's slight wampum to think in those terms, but you might as well set out with that as an intent. I think there's this opportunity for, for us as a brand to transform the way in which people think about furniture experiences in the home. So they think about them in terms of delivering better well-being to themselves, their family, and better well-being to the planet. A big part of what we wish to do is be thought leaders in the space because we can't cure this plastics problem on our own and we can't cure people's physiology alone. But we can be very vocal. We can raise the volume. We can amplify both of those conversations. So, you know, I'll be proud if um, by the time I turn up my heels, we have, you know, convinced a huge number of people around the world to convert to more sustainable furniture and to tackle the, uh, the plastics problem with us. I think a cool goal too for your company would be to get to the point where you have no more material to make chairs out of. Do you know what? I, I, I mentioned that to somebody the other day that the chief goal of the business is to, is to run out of raw material. And I just, the, the sad thing is like, it just won't happen in my lifetime, but it wouldn't it be great. Wouldn't it be great if we had no more ocean plastic, no more plastic that's heading to landfill to, to be able to utilize. You know, we've been very lucky actually to work with Econil, Aquafil. It's an Italian company that's pioneering doing this. And, and, and Giulia Bonazzi, the founder there, is, is, is an extraordinary individual in his own right. They are doing everything they can to never use virgin plastics again, just to haul nets out of the ocean and divert carpet from landfill. I'm dying to ask you this, this question, which just popped into my head. We've heard about the ocean plastic, the giant island in the Pacific, we, the Indonesia. My kids were in Indonesia for a summer, and that was the story that they told as well about just plastic everywhere. And I'm just curious, from your perspective, you must have a little bit of insight into some of these new gathering machines that are supposed to go get it. And is there any hope for getting that plastic and harvesting it and getting it out of there based on what you know? There has to be hope. Has to be hope. We've all got to have hope. Look, I, I, I cheer from the sidelines all of those efforts. I think all of them are magnificent. I think some of them are going to be more successful than others. But the most successful effort of all will be the one that stops it getting there in the first place. I would love to challenge really impressive purpose-driven organizations like the Gates Foundation to tackle the problem of how do we prevent this stuff going into the ocean in the first place, whether it's <laughs> large-scale microfiche at the end of major rivers and, and those sorts of things and, and, and large polluting nations. I don't know what that that uh, that uh, mechanic is going to be. It's certainly going to involve legislation. It's certainly going to involve regulation and a whole lot of education. But meantime, we have to keep trying to haul it out of the ocean. It'd just be nice if it wasn't such a thankless task for all these guys coming up with these amazing technologies because there's more going in than they can pull out in any given year. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being a part of the solution. I am personally inspired by leaders by you, and I, I know that Ed shares that sentiment, and it's been incredible to talk with you more today and learn from you. 
uh, as a as a purpose driven leader. So thank you so much for joining us, Richard. Oh, look, it's a pleasure. And thanks, thanks for having me on. Thanks for all you guys are, are doing. I think you guys are doing remarkable stuff to amplify this conversation more than any single company can do. So, so thank you. Really inspirational, really fun. And we hope you get to spend the whole day in shorts today. <laughs> <laughs> That's <Absolutely>. the plan. <laughs> all right. Bye. Thank Cheers, you. guys. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone.